Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns are they, them. And today we're talking to Eric Bernhardt, game maker, sometimes streamer, and one of the creators of the upcoming game, Brinkwood. Thank you so much for being on the show, Eric. Would you mind introducing yourself further for our listeners? Of course. Thanks, Ray. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, big fan. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Um, a little bit about me. Uh, let's see. I'm from California. I'm roughly 30 years old now. Wow. Um, and I've been playing and making games pretty much all my life. Uh, I would say some of my favorite systems um, are Blades in the Dark, uh, the Dragon Age RPG, and anything belonging outside belonging or made by Sword Queen, Sword Queen games, I'd say. So that's a yeah, nice, excellent. Uh, that was a very nice intro. We've not had someone do. I'm quite like I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> I'm glad. So uh, I am excited to talk about Brinkwood, um, mm-hmm. which is a game that I've been following for a little bit. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to play it yet, but uh, I'm very uh, into its core premise, uh, awesome. or rather, what I know of its core premise. Um, but before we start talking about uh, Robin Hood fighting vampires. Uh, mm-hmm. I would like to ask you how you first got, how you first moved from making games, uh, sorry, from playing games to making mm-hmm. games. Um, we get some interesting answers to that, so it's a good place to start. Yeah, it's it's actually funny um, that you asked that because I think I'm a bit of an outlier where I actually did not start playing games. I started making them. Um, where uh, when I was really young, um, I came up at a time where D and D and like role playing games were not uh, viewed with very much esteem, and my parents were not about to pay the whatever fifty dollar a book or whatever it was you needed to play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but I had some friends that really liked role playing games, and like we all wanted to play one. So I was like, I can, I think I can cobble something together here. Um, so it was very free form. It was very, um, like the simplest mechanics were, you know, we just, uh, do Rochambeau or rock, paper, scissors. Um, and like based on that, who wins, who controls the narrative for a little bit and that sort of thing. Um, so that's how I kind of like got into games, uh, was making games for my friends based on, you know, stuff like Pokemon, uh, video games we enjoyed, stuff like that. And um, I kind of put that down when I got into high school. Uh, but by the time college rolled around, uh, the Dragon Age RPG had just come out. And I was a big fan of Dragon Age. And that system is so beautifully flawed uh, that like, I felt like I had to do something with it to like fix it if I wanted to run it. So I got back into kind of hacking games. And uh, I remember the first time I saw the Dragon Age RPG was on uh, that Geek and Sundry show Tabletop, and it was the first time mm-hmm. they played a ra- role-playing game on there. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is very, in terms of mechanics, very, like, stripped back and streamlined while still having, like, detail and stuff. And now... Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, almost 10 years later or something. Right. I'd probably look at it and be like, this is overly complicated. You don't need all of this. 
Exactly. Like that was, that was pretty much my journey with it as well, where like, it was such a revelation that you didn't have like 20 different classes or like that things were so relatively streamlined and it was just, you know, damage reduction instead of hit chance and all this. And you rolled 3d6 instead of a d20. Oh my God, what an idea. Um, (laughs) And like, so so basically what I did was I hacked together uh, a version of Mass Effect um, that was kind of built on the bones of that age system. And I think you can still find it like banging around the green Ronin forums or like some version of it uh, gets picked up and hacked. Cause like, it was always like a question for people like, Oh, well we have a dragon age RPG now, you know, what's standing in the way of a mass effect or nothing, make it yourself. Um, but yeah, that game, uh, I don't think it was designed with any sort of balance in mind, which like nowadays I don't, I barely care about balance, but like if you're going to have like a gritty, um, like fighty game, um, it, 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 it behooves you to put more thought than zero into like whether or not the monsters you're throwing at the characters will have any chance of damaging them slash the players will have any chance of defeating certain high-level monsters in that game. So I never think about balance in terms of... Um, I know that this is a design thing for like D&D. I never think about balance in terms of like making sure that all of the characters have a thing to do and no character like outshines the other. But mm-hmm. uh, I do think about... And this is a thing that my friend Finn uh, mentioned to me. I do think about... Um, uh, do any of the options that mm-hmm. I have created for my game uh, become automatic options in that if you don't uh, take it, then the game uh, not isn't going to work, but like you're going to have a completely different experience. Like if I take this thing, then I automatically right. succeed. So like, why would I not take it? Um, mm-hmm. So like, that's the only kind of character balancing stuff that I ha- really think about. It's like, oh, I got to make sure that I don't have automatic options. Yeah, yeah. And avoid, that's... avoid. Um, what is the word? Uh, avoid optimization at all costs. <laughs> right. Yeah. There can be no optimal choices. Yeah, that's that's really good design. Um, and I'm glad I'm glad you brought it up because that is definitely something I'm a big believer in. I think I've moved over time away from like a very gamist perspective to use GNS theory of like everything must be balanced and everything must kind of work like a board game towards like, okay, does this, does the do this, does the system achieve the results consistently? You know, like, do you actually, if you put in these expectations and this social contract, um, will you get Y out of it again? Or if someone, you know, through no fault of their own picks, you know, the what is it um uh the the rope tying feet you know are they going to be shot in the leg um and just like cripple their character outright yeah because um, they didn't take the immune to cold shots feet right yeah exactly <laughs> why would you not take the immune to cold shots feet yeah so that level of optimization is definitely not something i aim for but um i also i i like balance in terms of like I like to think of the GM as a player and the player having a good experience and being able to provide a good experience for the other players. So like if your system isn't structured in such a way that the GM 
has the tools they need to figure out how to make a scene that is engaging slash challenging slash whatever it is you're going for. Like that is not a well-designed game. And the GM yeah. needs to know how to run your game. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just played Van Jesus last night. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, when we were done, I was asking the players what they thought. And they were like, oh, wow, I, I just, uh, it seems to be a really good system in that it makes lots of, it makes really fun story. I'm like, that was all me. There are no GM tools in this game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is not, so... I wouldn't normally, I wouldn't say that that makes the game not worthwhile, but like any mm-hmm. sort of thing about uh, the game being like the stories that the game tell being fun. I'm like, the game doesn't right. have any tools for that. Um, right. But it has a lot of like evocative text, <laughs> which is, uh, well, which makes so it something. easy to work with. Yeah, exactly. It puts you into the mind space pretty easily. Um, I guess, mm-hmm. what were some of the first games you published? Or first things you published? So um, the first thing I published was a game known as Crone. Um, I would be surprised if anyone's heard of it. Uh, it came I out. Mean, I've like, heard of it, but I, you know, been right, doing right. A little bit of you research. did your homework. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it came out at a time uh, where, like, Google Plus was the main like RPG hangout thing, and like I was coming in relatively as an outsider. But it was a very exciting time because like Kickstarter just showed up and like people were making lots of money and like people who never thought they were going to get their games made, you know, had a chance to get them made. Um, And I was like, oh, wow, you know, this thing that I just kind of do with my friends and mess around with, you know, I could actually put something together and put something out. Um, Looking back, I really, hindsight being 2020, nowadays you put something on itch.io it's published. You're done. Like that is so much easier to do. Um, and so much better to do in my opinion, if like you're starting out as a designer, because like your first game is not going to be your best game. I don't think. Um, and like that level of community interaction of doing game jams of like working through ideas and like seeing what sticks, what catches interest, what catches the zeitgeist is so much better now than it was then. Cause back then it was just, I have this idea uh, of a game that is about um, older women and witches specifically. And I have this idea for combat that uses kind of like deck builder mechanics and I'm going to spend, you know, however much it was of my own money, like to try and put this together and then ask people for another couple extra grand. And like, it's a huge risk. And I, I, I would not do it again if I had the choice. Um, so, so that's a lot of business talk for a game. I didn't really talk about what the game was, but um, those are my main takeaways from the experience. So, Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the fact that at the time, it seemed like, the the tools that Kickstarter was giving you made games so accessible and and it can feel in the moment almost right. like um, how oh man this has removed so many barriers it's so e- it's so easy yeah. to make a game and you then think. you know a few years later it's like you look back at that I'm like that's such a huge barrier to entry I'm never going to be able to run a Kickstarter what the hell mm-hmm. um, 
And we see that kind of cycle in, I mean, I'm sure we see the cycle everywhere, but we see that cycle in particular in games where like something new comes along. But then when you look at it in retrospect, it's like, wow, that's, that's not new at all. I have this response mm-hmm. to, I mean, I wasn't around at the time that it was released, but I was in a similar space when I found the game and that was Pendragon. When I saw Pendragon, I'm like, oh, oh wow. yeah. it's so focused. You can only be a knight and you yeah. can't be like anything else. You have to be a knight in King Arthur's court or a lady in King Arthur's court, which is right, also right. kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. And that's all you can be. And that's so focused and so like forward. And at the time that it came out, it was, but it came out like, 20 something years ago you're right right yeah. um, but i only discovered it a few years ago and i was still playing like new world of darkness stuff primarily <laughs> um and i was like Ooh. oh whoa that's so yeah. cool that it's so focused and i really right. like focused games and now i look back at it i'm like that's not focused at all there is <laughs> such a huge like Right. There's so much in being a knight in King Arthur's court that it's not exactly. focused. Because you don't have mm-hmm. to be a good knight. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be, like, a particularly good warrior. You can mm-hmm. be, like, it's so broad uh, mm-hmm. now, looking back. Right, I think exactly. we see that in a bunch of, that, that repetition in a bunch of other areas. Um, yeah. I, w- I would say, like... I'm definitely a big believer in specificity and I really appreciate kind of the move towards specificity in games. Um, My whole thing is like, if you're going to design a system, like design something that captures an experience that is specific, you know, don't try to be everything to everyone. Um, You know, just nail, like find your mark, find the person that's going to love your game and make the game for them. You know, don't go incredible. Don't go incredibly broad and like basically try and make your game everything to everyone because that will dilute your focus. And also, like, if nothing, if 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 everything is generic and everything is possible, then nothing stands out. In my yeah. experience, at least. I I really move away from and do not like um, sandbox style uh, role playing yeah. games. Mm-hmm. And I understand their appeal, but I'm just like, I would rather like have a game where every mechanic is like directly related to the theme that we're exploring. Like right. if I want to do a game about being, I don't know, uh, the downtrodden fighting against an oppressive vampiric regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will. I want a specific game for that. I don't need it to do that and also allow me to be an emotional mech pilot uh, fighting against uh, <laughs> the Federation of Unionist Planets or whatever. Right, because that game already exists and it's called Lancer and it's 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 great. It's it's good at what it does. Yeah, it's great. It could use more like romance options for the mech. I think definitely. is what it definitely is lacking, and I sure mm-hmm. hope someone's making that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like there's there's a bunch of mech games and like you can get really granular with it. Like this is the mech game that is about queer romance uh, and revolution, yeah. you know, or this is the mech game that is about, you know, you dying out in space alone as the mech shuts down around you, you know. There's like four of those and they're all very right. good. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, we have 
foreshadowed some of the specificity of your game throughout this interview. So of I course. Think we might talk about Brinkwood. And I think a good way to sort of transition into that uh, conversation might be for me to describe what I know about Brinkwood and then you Excellent. correct my assumptions <laughs> as needed. So okay. my understanding is when I first found it, it was, it was uh, I can't remember how I found it, but it, I got the impression that it was a game about being uh Merry folk of the of the of the woods, Robin mm-hmm. Hood type figures, um, attempting to overthrow slash protect themselves from the noble vampire lords that uh, that were imposing unreasonable blood taxes on them, mm-hmm. uh, and literally uh, sucking their blood dry, and then. As I dug a bit deeper, I also saw the other component of the game where these uh, these wood wood folk, these these men of men and women and other individuals of the hood, right. mm-hmm. uh, were gaining power from the fe- the fae by yes. wearing visages of them, by wearing these masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it gave them some of that power, and also it's uh, forged in the dark game, so that's cool too. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. Um, I think you've nailed quite a bit of it. Um, I, I the only things I would say is like it's always interesting to me um, where people kind of place the tone of it because I always think it's much darker, and then people like either lighten it a lot. Or if you're jammy, you go way darker. Um, so uh, sorry, I that's feel like, reference. I feel I feel like Robin Hood and uh, and Highwayman fiction sort of has that gambit. Like you've got right. you've got your your super kooky uh, apocryphal musical Robin Hood, and then right. you've got like your French Highwayman fiction mm-hmm. where everyone's dying horrible deaths. Uh, yeah. So you do have that wide tone gambit to play in. Mm-hmm. I think, like, I think part of it, uh, like, leaks through my own experience um, of like where I am and what the times are now, and like how everything's kind of terrible, and you're kind of fighting for a better world, no matter who you are or where you are. That, like, I kind of focus on that. Um, and uh, like a, a main mechanic of the game is the idea of tragedy that no one like packs up everything they own, leaves their life behind and runs into the forest because everything was great and shiny and things were going super well for them. You know, it's because something went wrong in your life. Like I think in the original Robin Hood fiction, it's literally that like he is walking through a forest and like he meets some guys and they're like, hey, I bet you can't hit that, you know, uh, deer or something. And he's like, watch me. And he does it. And they're like, oh, we were just kidding around. That's the king's deer. You're an outlaw now. And like kind of the injust, like kind of the injustice of that, of like making a single mistake and it ruining your life um, is like kind of an interesting thing for me to play with where like a lot of the tragedies of the characters are things like your entire family, you watch them starve slowly um, because you know, everything you had was taken as tax 
and then literally the blood in your veins was taken as tax or like you watched as um this thing you have you made uh this thing you built was taken and corrupted uh by the vampires or um you were like made a party to some evil that you didn't realize like you realized uh, we, we have a lot of what are called scions um which are basically former vampires because i'm a big believer in kind of the class traitor trope and the idea that like people can benefit from injustice and not realize it and what matters is what you do once you realize that benefit i feel and like that's really um that's a very good mirror of what the modern Robin Hood myth tends to be or folk tale tends to be where the modern Robin Hood is almost always this noble uh, Lord returning to, from yeah. the Crusades and is like, oh, being a noble Lord's actually like super horrible and exploitative. I guess I'm going to like join the forest folk and fight against this. Maybe I can like organize them into a militia. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's another big thing I wanted to avoid is the idea that like you are showing up and t telling these peasants how to run their shit. Um, a big part of the game is the factions, the idea of these groups of people who have been organizing and working against the vampires for a lot longer than you have and are much better at certain things than you are. And the only way you really get ahead in the game, the only way you progress is by building alliances, getting them to trust you, helping them out with things, and having them help you in return, which was kind of built out of my own experience uh, in uh, anarchist and socialist organizing. Yeah, and I think that aspect of... I mean, one, that's a thing that Forge in the Dark stuff does well, because that is like mm -hmm. built into Blades in the Dark a lot. Uh, but also that's a thing that is underrepresented in like almost all Robin Hood fiction. I think maybe the Robin Hood BBC TV show did that a little bit. A little bit. That was, that was probably the best one, <laughs> the best adaptation. And at least in my personal opinion. So. I mean, the worst one for like that would definitely be the Robin Hood um, movie that just came out where it's like, <laughs> a, it's like a freaking, um, uh, it's desert storm movie and he yeah. just like randomly he gives the worst the worst like i'm gonna inspire you to fight by my side speech it's just yeah. like that's not gonna inspire anyone you know i i have like a, a weird love stuff. hate with that that movie not there's a bunch of that movie that i really love but yeah, yeah. i i really i really like go in for really good like warrior speeches and stuff and i'm just like oh, i yeah. could have improvised a better one than what they put in that movie i could have given exactly. a better one on the spot mm -hmm. and i'm not i mean i'm not i am a trained actor but i'm not as trained as that guy as an actor <laughs> or whoever was writing that movie god <laughs> like was that no, was, I'm thinking of the King Arthur movie. I'm um, pretty sure both of those movies are Guy Ritchie movies. Are they really? I think they both are. I think both oh the both the apocryph the the super knight's tale-ish kind of mm -hmm. King Arthur movie, which I haven't seen, and um, that Robin Hood movie are both Guy Ritchie movies. I'm, they definitely feel like it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that Robin Hood movie, like it borrowed so much of its aesthetic from like. 
uh, I, I'm a big believer in subtlety is for cowards. And like that movie through its aesthetic borrows so much from like Occupy and like Antifa and anti-fascist organizing and like kind of the visual motifs of that. And then and like, like presented in a way that's just not very yeah. supportive of those groups. Uh, it is yeah. not a Guy Ritchie film. It is directed by Otto Bathurst. Okay. The poor I don't know Guy who Ritchie. Otto Bathurst is. <laughs> Someone who tried to make a Guy Ritchie movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway um, sorry, back on track. No, it did. I think that was a good tangent to talk about. Uh, yeah, the fiction. Yeah. Uh, and um, how how important it is, like almost all of the modern Robin Hood movies and Robin Hood fiction that I've Robin Hood fiction that I've seen, and w- your 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 story is pulling on that, and I think you even mentioned it yeah. like in the blurb for some versions of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, all the modern ones like do tend to have a climax where it's all about oh we've got to work together now. Mm-hmm. We got to work together, or else we're not going to be able to save our friends from um, from the sheriff's yeah. castle or whatever. Rise up, peasants! I need your help now. Yeah, I need your help now. <laughs> and it's like, well, have the real Robin Hood stole from the rich and gave to the poor? He he helped people. He didn't just demand that they rise up for him when he needed them to. Yeah, you know, um, um, and like. I, I, it's funny. I draw a lot of inspiration from uh, the the kind of a childhood classic, which was the Robin Hood um, movie uh, with the, the Disney version. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, with the fox. So yeah, with the foxes. Because like so much of that movie is like the other characters. You know, it's it's the be- it's you know the bear who's the friar tuck, and it's you know the chicken, all those people. And I was like. I want to tell a Robin Hood story that is about all those people. You know, it's not just about Robin Hood and Maid Marian. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, why did you decide that uh, they made packs with the Fae in order to get power? How did that come about as an idea? Well, I say, I say, how did you, as in how did yeah. the people making the game? Because it's not just you, it's a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. I think, like, there was this idea, because it started with this, like, very core idea that was made by my friend Talon Lee, uh, who's a fellow Australian, um, of just the name, Brinkwood, the Blood of Tyrants, and it was going to be Forged in the Dark, and he wanted to run it for some people, uh, I guess, local to him, who, and it was, like, one of a couple different options of games he would run. And they basically said they, they passed on that and they went with something else. But like it stuck in my brain for so long, just the idea of Robin Hood versus vampires. And I started to think, okay, well, why are these people like able to go toe to toe with vampires? You know, like in uh, Blades in the Dark, you're literally just a guy, you know, you're a gangster, you're a scoundrel, right? And there's no like in fiction justification for why you're the one that's going to rise up. And like, I like that to a certain extent and I wanted to keep the idea of like you as your own person, but also that there was something else there and that in order to achieve things, you need help. Um, And then I've always been a big fan of uh, like changeling stories, changeling the lost, um, fiction around the fae around the forests and i'm like wouldn't it be cool 
because I've already got vampires here. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we had some other fantasy elements? And like the first thing I think of when I think of the forest and fantasy is I think of the Fae. And I also, it kind of just built out from there. I'm like, oh yeah, and the Fae are all about bargains, right? And they're all about like, kind of like mutual aid effectively. Like, I will give you this if you, you know, promise to do this or something like that. And this idea of like, their whole nature is contractualism. Um, And so, and it was also just, it came from a gameplay perspective of, I've played a lot of Forged in the Dark, and at every single point, um, there has come a point like well before the story is over where people are like, I am sick of my character. I don't want to play them anymore. I want to do something new. And I, and like that kind of like bothered me a little bit that these characters weren't getting to finish their stories out because like the mechanics had grown tiresome. So my innovation was take the character sheet split it in half you have your characters their backgrounds you know their action ratings on one side and on the other you have this mask that has all the special abilities and it's got you know some extra essence that you can use um and it's got you know all its own motivations and all these other things so that from session to session you don't get bored because you can always pick the thing that's going to be interesting to you on that day and you're always going to be able to uh, and by the same token you know if you get tired of a character and or like you feel like a character's story has run out you don't feel bad about putting them down because a lot of the experience and a lot of the work and a lot of the like investment mechanically has gone into the masks as well so you can create another character that picks up the same mask and you know, benefits from the previous person's hard work. It's uh, so similar to like, and I don't know if maybe Finn took inspiration from that while we were working on this idea, but that's like the very similar to how we're doing the mech in uh, my yeah. big mech game. We have yeah. a separate character sheet that's Definitely. sort of like just a column that you slide behind and it sits next to your mm-hmm. pilot character sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, I think yeah. I think that's such a great way to do anything like that, where you have like almost like partner a partnership or like some aspect that is like of critical importance. Mm-hmm. Like in Blades in the Dark, it's the crew, right? You know, your your character might not survive; your crew will live on. And in Scum and Villainy, it's the ship. You know, we all live the live on this ship, and we all build this ship. Um, and in Blades in the Dark, it's the masks, you know, we all wear these masks. Huh? You said in Blades in the Dark. (laughs) Oh, did I I say that again? In Brinkwood, uh, it's the masks. And like, so for a mech game to have it be, you know, your character over here and then the, uh, the mech over here and like have those kind of like flex against each other, I think can create a really cool dynamic. So what is the process like for building a mask because i i think that perhaps that's one of the more unique aspects of the games game mechanically Mm -hmm. is this mask that you have and and it seems like you can sort of move it around between characters what Mm -hmm. how do you go about making the mask or how do you get your mask because it sounds like you modify it over time so like i give a lot of um i was really inspired by this game 
uh, I always mispronounce it, so I'm just going to spell it S-U-N-D-O uh, by uh, at Dovetailer. Um, Sunday? Yeah, it's, um, I, I can't pronounce it. Um, I, I, every time I try, I mess it up. But <laughs> in that game, it's all about like spirits and stuff, and like you play as like undertakers. But the interesting thing she has you do is at the start of the game, you figure out your fiction around what the underworld is and like what you know a uh, a, uh, a a reaper is it, it, there's a different word for it but you know effectively the same trope um and like what are the secrets in the world and like how do these things work together so i give a couple different options as as to like what the masks are and then like what might be secrets about the mask and so you decide on that and the next thing you do is you build your fae with um, a game of Exquisite Corpse. Um, and what Exquisite Corpse is, is one person writes down, like, the first line of something. And, like, I give the prompts of the first line. And then someone el- and then you take the piece of paper, pass it to someone else, and they write the second line. And then they pass it to the next one, and then they write the third line. And we all kind of rotate it. So by the end, you know, we have this thing that is, like, slowly built by everyone in the group but you know is unique in that not everyone has the full picture when they write it um and then what that informs uh is how you actually get your mask uh because the fae made these masks and the fae are the ones that are going to give them to you and uh there's a couple different ways it can happen um my friend Charles Umbral Aeronaut ran a really cool thing where basically we were out in the forest and our Fae wanted to test us. So we had to, we were basically starving, hungry, tired, you know, about to die. But like every once in a while, this thing would just show up and like demand we fight it or demand we negotiate or demands that we do something else. And the idea was that, the Fae was testing us to see if we were we we had the inner strength to kind of handle the masks. So by the time we got there and we were like ready to pledge what was called our pact, because um, this is another key com- component of the character where your character decides up front what is the reason they're doing this revolution. Like the tragedy is the impetus. The pact is the thing that's going to keep you going. Like, you can have a pact of solidarity that you're going to shoulder the burdens of others. You can have a pact of beauty that you're going to try and make the world a better place. You can have a pact of justice to make sure people won't suffer as you have suffered. Um, And, you know, you can go straight up vengeance and be like, no, I'm just, I'm going to kill all the vampires. And they're all going to be dead and that's going to fix the problem. Um, So the idea is that by committing yourself to the cause and that the Fae have a vested interest in this cause for other reasons um, that uh, are also like a little more uh, amorphous and not as well detailed. Um, but Presumably because you have- so that your storyteller can cre- create more clarity mm-hmm. as the story unfolds. Exactly. Like, why are the um, Fae doing this? Their reasons are mysterious and unknown to you until, like, <laughs> it is dramatically relevant for them to become known to you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, because your interests align with the Fae, and because you have pledged yourself to this pact, that is what kind of 
fuels your ability to use the masks, um, which also expresses itself in gameplay, where every time you put on the mask, you have the choice whether or not to pledge yourself uh, to your pact. And if you do so, the mask will give you extra resources and extra help. And if you don't, you know, maybe the mask isn't expecting as much of you, you don't get as much from the mask, but you at the same time, don't risk the mask's wrath if you don't follow through on what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. That reminds me of um, a mechanic that I designed for my mech game recently because I was having trouble dealing violence to my players. Uh, mm-hmm. I just kept on being like, oh, I don't want to like hurt the characters in a way that they're not comfortable with. Yeah. And so like, I made this new mechanic where you choose what, you choose which moves trigger when you die or when you take maximum harm before you go into battle. And that sets the tone mm. for how violent the fight will be. So I was like, I really like you, that. Do you use the move where when you die, like roll to see how violent your death is basically. And if you can damage the enemy when you, while you go or when you take maximum harm, do you pass out or otherwise become immobile until the battle is over or you are saved. Um, right. Yeah. I really like that. That is, that is such a good way to kind of like marry almost a bit of a safety tool um, of like, how much are you comfortable with? Like, cause most of the time when we ask how much are you comfortable with, it's supposed to be like a blanket statement um, or like we treat it as a blanket statement. Like you say, I'm willing to let my character die. Okay. You might die to a goblin. Um, but to have it be, before every fight before every combat that means you can decide relevant stakes you know like is this going up against my long lost nemesis you know well then yeah maybe i'm ready to put my life on the line there's also there's also a trigger on the uh lesser um damage one the one where you pass out where uh, when it goes off you can choose to push on or you can mm. lay a mobile. And if you push on, you automatically shift to the other death move on your next one. There's no choice because mm-hmm. you have chosen to, like, you are in, have been severely damaged and you've decided, no, I need to keep fighting. So that has raised the stakes of the situation. That's such a good mech moment too. Cause like in the mech game, that's like shutting off, you know, the safety levers or the blaring klaxons and being like, no, get back up. We're going to finish this. Give me all of your power, Barbatos. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, I really, uh, I like that uh, that aspect of the design. That like in that committing to the pact. On, I also really like packs and oaths in things, which yeah. is why when I played Changing the Lost, I was always making goblin contracts and death contracts yeah. and things because I'm like, yeah. yeah, the normal contracts are fine, but they're not like, you don't accidentally make them when you say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent like one whole arc of a game designing a, a break in case of emergency pact uh, mm-hmm. so that I could make a pact with a death god. <laughs> I'd be like, keep me alive and whole until... Uh, until the sun next rises and you may yeah. take me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like those two, which is like, so in, in Blades in the Dark, it has something called uh, the Devil's Bargain. Devil's Bargain. 
Um, and in my game, I call them mask bargains because devil bar devil's bargains always felt a little too ephemeral to me. Like devils are a thing in that game. And mm -hmm. like, you could argue that somehow they're influencing the fiction. Uh, but I really like it that it's like, no, your mask is offering you a bargain. You know, it's saying, Hey, you can get an extra die or I can give you some extra effect, but I want you to do this for me, or I want you to do you know, I want you to really push yourself in this way or something like that. And like the whole thing I try and emphasize with those is that the Max aren't trying to hurt you. They're trying to help you, but they don't quite get people uh, and they don't quite get like mental limits or physical limits. So they'll just keep pushing um, until essentially you break. Uh, but I really like that element of you know, if you want more power, you can always bargain for it with an entity that's actually has a personality and actually is able to like give you something else. Um, I really like yeah. that aspect of that aspect that you're describing, and I also saw this in Under Hollow Hills. Um, yeah, this is more a thematic choice where um, the Fey are not evil they're just weird and different because so much of modern fey media or modern media featuring fey and also coming from this background of playing changeling a lot when i was younger mm -hmm. is like there's this kind of perspective of the fey are evil and i'm like well, they're trying to no. trick you you know yeah and i'm like i mean they might be some might be they're people they're weird people from another yeah, some place. of them might be assholes but you know yeah but they're not all going to be bad and i think that's my I mean, that is a core choice for Changeling, but like, there's also, I think that it is a less interesting game because all Fae are evil. Right, yeah. Um, it, it's funny, I saw this Twitter conversation about Brinkwood, and I didn't have anything to do with it, and it was someone talking to someone else, um, and they were basically saying, I'm really interested in Brinkwood, but, you know, I, I do not like the Fae, like... I, I spent my childhood being afraid they were going to come and take me away. And like, or, you know, in so many, in so much media and in so much fiction, you know, they're evil, they're tricksters, they're kind of things. And like, I, I, I didn't step in cause I'm like, well, that's kind of like, th that is I, I, my big thing is like Brinkwood is not going to be for everyone and I'm not going to force you to like it. Um, but it's an interesting thing to me that I I very much want it to be, you know, the, the Fae are never going to trick you into something because that's not worth it to them. Like they don't, what they care about is your intent. What they care about is, you know, your feeling and your passion, not so much, you know, that they got you in some like labyrinthine contractual way. You know, they, they form agreements rather than it's contracts. It's very, um, it is bringing to mind, and I can't remember what they're called, but the very spirit-like fey things from the uh, Stormlight Archive, mm. um, which is a Brandon Sanderson book, um, with, with the most fantasy world, like the first time I've ever read a fantasy book, and I'm like, this right. feels like not Earth. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> How wild is that? Uh, and, uh, and like in that, it's very, it's that similar kind of pact system of like, mm -hmm. we're not trying to trick you. you. We are telling you what 
the words are that like everything you're agreeing to is right there in these words that you are saying and you will be held to them or you will like lose your power and it's like Mm -hmm. oh no i broke the words why am i losing my power it's like well because you fucking broke the words right yeah you decided to kill a guy because you hate him Mm -hmm. that's not that's against your whole deal that you agreed to so Mm -hmm. goodbye power Mm -hmm. have fun with your broken leg and it's it's so much more interesting to me when a character chooses to break an agreement. Yeah, rather than know? be tricked. Like, they're like, I just can't, I cannot continue doing this thing that you want me to do because, like, I'm just mm-hmm. too, for whatever reason, I need to do the other thing. It's like, well, here's the consequence. Yeah, it's, it's so much more powerful to, like, know the consequence and, like, run into the burning building. Like, that's definitely a theme I want to keep coming back to with Brinkwood. The idea that what sets you apart isn't that, you know, you're super special or your magic, or you're the chosen one. It's that you have the commitment necessary to run into the burning building, you know? And anyone can do that. Anyone can step up and make a difference if they're willing to, like, put something of themselves online. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I think that that is a really powerful uh, theme to be chasing. Um, mm-hmm. We haven't super talked about the uh, vampires because <laughs> while that is an interesting framing device, it's also like, yeah, they're vampires. They're noble lords. They, they're they're, they're, they're so, doing horrible stuff. Uh, I, am, I am interested in like, are there mm-hmm. things about the vampires within the fiction as you yes. set it up that are... Uh, that set it apart in some way and that people might yes. be surprised by. Yes. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because this is one of my favorite things about the game. Uh, again, no subtlety. Um, and a lot of vampire fiction, uh, it's kind of a question as to like, are the vampires kind of like tragic villains? Cause they were themselves like products of abuse or products of, like something horrible that was done to them um, and that they have to keep doing to other people in order to survive? Are they, you know, addicts that like will wither up and die if they don't do this horrible thing? And like, that's kind of a tragedy Um, or, and like, those are usually the two options you see uh, in fiction or like there's some variation of that. For me, I'm like, no, fuck that. You became a vampire because you chose to get a lot of money and then drink it because you wanted to be powerful and you wanted to be rich and you wanted to live forever and you can give it up at any time. All you need to do is stop drinking blood. If a vampire stops drinking blood in Brinkwood, and this is like what happens to the Scion characters, the former uh, vampires, your power goes away. But you don't die, you don't shrivel up, you don't go into, like, racking fits of addict, addiction-fueled, like, trauma. Um, You just stop being a vampire. And it is so crucial to me, both as, like, a metaphor for capitalism and capitalist hoarding of wealth, that it's the vampires are never in the right for what they're doing. They're never, like well, let's think about it. And maybe he's not actually that bad of a guy. It's like, no, you took people's wealth and resources and labor and literal blood, sweat and toil, and you hoarded it 
for selfish reasons. Um, and like, if you're the kind of person who does that, you kind of deserve a stake through the heart. Yeah. Everyone should have the option to live forever or no one should have the option to live forever. Right. Exactly. It should never be at the expense of another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sick. I'm into that very much. Um, how mechanical are the vampires as, uh, enemies? Uh, cause sometimes in fiction, sometimes in role-playing games, your enemies are like right. mechanical. Sometimes they're just player characters, but mirrored. And other times they're kind of a list of behaviors and things that can happen. But then there's not like that much mechanical. And I'm kind of like all over the shop on, in terms of what I like. Yeah. Um, I think I, I like to kind of mix approaches. Cause like there's a layer of vampiric servants which are basically like all the monsters of the world that the vampires have created by like giving little bits of their blood to people, to animals, or like using their vampiric blood magic to like twist and shape things in a certain way. Um, like one of, one of my favorites is uh, the idea of the porcelain, which are basically um, vampiric servants, people who have been encased in porcelain so that their features never fade and they never grow ugly and they are constantly striving for their vampire lord uh, the countess's approval um, because they are basically like discarded things that were tossed off and they're kind of like a very like mechanical threat where you know I have guidance around okay here's what they can do here's their abilities here's you know generally what they're weak to and like each each one of those has a tier right like a tier one threat is like something anyone can handle uh tier two you know more serious tier three like you're getting up there and like tier four is the highest it goes so there is that mechanical aspect to it um there's also more of a narrative aspect to it where our narrative designer uh brian richmond um, our, our, I should say our world building designer has gone in and created a bunch of vampires that are more kind of collections of motives and histories where you have uh, like a vampire who came to this land to try this cursed land uh, to try and remove the curse uh, and uh, get rid of it. But, you know, were themselves consumed by it. Uh, and now, you know, they cut open animal entrails to try and divine the future. That's the Hieromancer. Um, or you have this vampire who, you know, be- back before they were a vampire, they, you know, were a knight and they believed uh, that, uh, you know, everyone should, uh, like, be held to his standard of chivalry. And once he became a vampire, his whole thing is he's just kind of a a, a a radical centrist where, you know, nothing is ever the perfect type of resistance for him, you know? And it's like kind of, so, so you can, you can kind of pick and choose as the GM and be like, okay, do I want to face them down with a mechanical threat that they can really quickly grok and like, I can keep kind of showing to them or do I want to set up this vampire as like a character in their own right who is pursuing their own motivations and like has a little more going on to them and is kind of like calling the shots and pulling things together. Yeah. 
No, I think that that's an excellent approach to it. And they sound like some very interesting characters to uh, work with and sort of uh, add more depth to uh, in play. I think it's a, those are some interesting archetypes and such. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, um, which is a shame because I'm really enjoying talking to you. Uh, but for people <laughs> yeah, that want great. to hear more about uh, Brinkwood and the work that you're doing, uh, where can they find you online and where can they find Brinkwood, which I think is having a Kickstarter soon? Yes, uh, we're shooting for a Kickstarter uh, either sometime in the spring or summer. Um, but if you go to brinkwood.net, um, we actually went out and we bought the URL. That'll take you to whatever the current iteration is, be it our itch.io page, which has links to our Discord. Our Discord's a lot of fun and we've got a great community. That's where I'm streaming and running games of it. Um, and you can also, of course, get a demo of the rules. You can get a community copy. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Eric the Barrick. Um, I post a lot of updates about it um, and talk about my work. Uh, and also uh, the San Gennaro Co-op, uh, of which Brinkwood is kind of a project of. Um, and if you follow the San Gennaro Co-op on Twitter, you will get updates about Brinkwood, as well as other great, exciting games made by people who value things like fair pay and uh, equality and worker control. Yeah, the San Gennaro Co-op is doing some really exciting stuff in terms of um, changing how games mm-hmm. are made and how the how wealth is distributed uh, on right. RPG projects which is very cool and we've interviewed them before um yeah I'm, if, I'm very excited to be a member yeah and if you want to listen to those interviews or other interviews with game designers about their work you can click on the interview tag or go to the interview playlist on soundcloud we have all of our interviews uh listed there over 30 of them i think there might be 40 wow uh interviews with game designers uh and makers and other people within the game making sphere um yeah thank you so much for being on the show uh eric uh and absolutely uh, i cannot wait for brinkwood to come out uh and i cannot wait to spruik your kickstarter some more when it's ready um, <laughs> awesome thanks yeah. i appreciate it yeah and th- thanks so much for talking with me um i really love talking about other de- about the game with other designers and people that can like get into like the cool little things of their own projects as well yeah, indeed. It's it's always fun to sort of see things reflected. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you all for listening. Farewell from the past. I'm Ray.